For the Bible reading today, we're reading from Psalm uh, 66 in the English Standard Version. Uh, if you're looking it up on your phone, the ESV will be easier to read along with. If you're reading in another language or another translation, not language, you might have a harder time. Um, but it is in the bulletin as well, or if it is in your Bible um, as well. That is Psalm 66, um, and it is the whole thing. The title of this psalm is, How Awesome Are Your Deeds? To the choir master, a song and a psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious play, praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praise of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. Who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will praise, I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be to God, because he has not rejected my prayer, or removed his steadfast love from me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian for reading, for praying for us. Just a reminder to all of you, uh, if there's time at the end of the message, there, then you can uh, share questions. Uh, if you have any, you can see my phone number there. Um, you can text, my, text me those questions. Or, uh, so be in, just have that in mind as you're listening in case there are things that, that come up for you. Last week, um, I gotta get this a little bit higher. Uh, last week, uh, well, first of all, we're going through a series this summer just on the Psalms, and we're, we're picking out different types of Psalms to see how the Psalms, as God's prayer group, book, do two things. One, they give voice and expression to our feelings and emotions uh, in the midst of our experiences, and they also give uh, a biblical framework of God's of lament. Uh, when you are down, when you are feeling overwhelmed, when you are faced with a tremendously difficult circumstance in your life, when you are suffering, a, a Christian, now a believer, this is a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what we're talking about here, a Christian is not supposed to, to stuff their feelings. You know that stiff upper lip kind of approach to life where you don't, you don't act like there's anything wrong and everything's always okay and, and, and you can handle it, that kind of thing. A Christian is not called to that. A 
Christian is not called to dump their feelings either. Mark mentioned this last week. You're not called to just sort of raise your fists and rage and, and spit out your feelings and just dump them in front of God or in front of other people. That's not helpful either. Neither are we called to wallow in our feelings, you know, to kind of, you know, when you've been in the bath for too long because it gets gross. Yeah, that's wallowing, right? We're not called to wallow in our pain and in our hurt either. What we are called to do is lament. And Mark walked through that with you last week about, about how a lament is, and he used a, a great definition from Mark Vrogup. Is that how I say it? Vrogup? Um, uh, lament is the honest cry of the hurting heart dealing with the paradox of pain and hurt in relationship to the goodness of God, something like that. I didn't butcher it, but I paraphrased it. What we're going to do today is we're actually going to explore this theme of what to do in our pain and in our suffering and in our hardships, in our trials, but with a, a twist. What do you do when, as Psalm 88 says, darkness is your closest friend? Well, you lament. But as Mark pointed out last week by the end of, of his message, lament eventually turns into worship and turns into praise. And we're going to drill down in Psalm, 76, or sorry, Psalm 66 as a psalm of praise in response to our suffering and our, su and our hardship. What you notice about Psalm 66 is that it is not a lament. There's no petition in this prayer. Uh, it's all praise. It's all glorifying. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't ask for deliverance. He doesn't ask for strength. He doesn't ask for anything. He just praises and praises and praises. Verse 5, come and see what God has done. Verse 16 says, come and hear all you who fear God. Why is this psalmist praising? And why are we going to think about worship and praise in the midst of suffering? This is why. Here's sort of the thesis for this morning, praise and worship is one of the most powerful antidotes to despair that we have. Praise and worship is one of the most powerful antidotes to despair that we have. Because you see, when, when we turn our hearts to praise and worship, even in the middle of the garbage that we're facing, when we do that, what happens is, is God begins to loom larger and larger and larger in our vision. And our troubles, actually, it's not that they shrink necessarily, but they gain the proper perspective because they're put in relief against the bigness and greatness and glory of God. Now, a couple of notes before we dive into this, into this psalm. We don't know the occasion of this psalm. We don't know the circumstances under which it was written. We don't even know the author of this psalm. We don't know who it was. And that means it's, in a sense, almost a generic psalm. But I chose it because of that, for that reason. Because, you see, the book of its people... I should say. God gave this prayer book to his people. And these types of psalms, these are generic psalms, these are meant to be applied at any time. They can fit any kind of occasion. Now, it's easy to take this psalm and make it your own when things are going great, right? 
easy to open your lips and praise the Lord for all his goodness and all his blessing when things are, are going great and you're always waking up and living, walking on the sunny side of the street, that kind of thing. But it's not so easy to do when things are down, when you are facing tremendous hardship. But it's precisely when you're down and facing tremendous hardship that this psalm could work most powerfully in 66. Notice, first of all, the call to praise. The call to praise in this psalm is not a private call to praise. This is a public call to praise. In verse 1, it says, Shout for joy to God all the earth. And then in verse 4, it says, All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. This is common in the Psalms that all the earth, the entire universe, the whole created order is called to bend the knee in worship to the God of the people of Israel. That's because God does not just rule believers. He doesn't just rule followers of Jesus Christ. He rules the entire universe. Not, it's not that the entire universe is acknowledging that rule, but the entire universe is living under that rule, even if it doesn't look like from our perspective and to our eyes that everyone is living under the rule of God. The reality is, is that everyone is living under the rule of God. Now stick with me here, okay? Imagine, remember I just said that this is a generic psalm, it could be used in all kinds of different occasions. Imagine for a moment that you're a Jew living in Babylon during the exile. You'll remember, if you know the Old Testament, you'll remember that at one point, God finally was so fed up with the rebellion of his own people that he said, off to Babylon with you. And they got conquered by the Babylonians, and a whole bunch of them got enslaved by the Babylonians, and they got dragged into Babylon. So here you are, you are far away from Jerusalem, you are far away from your home, you're far away from the temple where you worship God, you are under the Babylonian overlords, and you turn to them and you say, you know, if you want to worship the true God, the great God, the all-powerful God, just hear the Babylonians snicker. Oh no, your God, you pathetic little Israelite who we just walked over and dragged you back here, and now you're sweeping my porch and cleaning my toilet. You want me to worship your God. Why, why on earth would I ever bow down to your God rather than mine? Prove it. And your response would be, if you're using Psalm 66, is happy to. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, it says, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of men. And beginning in verse 5, he begins to recount the same thing that the psalmist did in, verse, in, uh, in Psalm 77. He begins to recount God's work of rescuing his people in the Exodus. And Mark pointed out last week that, the, that the, he used the great word paradigmatic. You guys remember that? Any of you guys go to your, your uh, um, thesaurus when he used that? This is a big word. I can barely say that word. I'm just giving you a bit of a hard time. He uses paradigmatic, the, the kind of main way or the main framework that the Jews used to look at God's redemptive. He opened up the waters of the Red Sea and enabled the people of Israel to walk through to safety. 
in that event, you see, God rescued, he redeemed, he freed, he saved his people from slavery. If you are asked today by an unbelieving friend, colleague, neighbor, whatever, so what, why are you a Christian? What makes God so great to you? How would you answer? How would you answer the question, well, God is great because, I think God is awesome because. I, my, my suspicion, and this is not a condemnation, you don't have to feel guilty if my suspicion is correct, but my suspicion is that most of us will say, well, look how great God is. Look at this world. Have you been to the mountains? Have you looked at a hummingbird as it is sucking nectar out of a flower? Have you, have you sat on the edge of a lake and watched the sunset? Have you gone out when you're camping in the middle of the night and looked at the stars? I mean, the universe is so glorious and so majestic. It had to come from somewhere, and my God created all those things, and isn't he glorious? And you know what? If that's where you go, that's not wrong. We looked at Psalm 19. Again, Mark walked us through that, and Psalm 19 does that very thing. But here's what's interesting. In the Bible... God's greatness and his deserving to rule over all things is actually demonstrated primarily through his ability not to create, but to save, to rescue. Now, in the Old Testament, primarily, the, 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 the people of God, they looked at that through the lens of the Exodus, but we are New Testament people. We are living on the other side of Easter. And as New Testament people, we look through that lens and we see that Jesus Christ was the ultimate rest enslaved and God sent his son to rescue us from that. And because God sent his son to rescue us from that, we have experienced an even greater exodus than the people of Israel did. In fact, actually the New Testament refers to Christ's uh, Lysidus, see Luke 9.31. Here's my point, if you're trying to wonder where I'm getting, where I'm trying to get to. When we suffer, when we're facing hardships, when we're facing trials, when life is despairing, we tend to dwell on our present situation just like the Israelites could have done if they were in Babylon in exile and they were thinking about their relationship with God, they could have spent all their time just thinking, well, here we are enslaved, here we are in exile, here we are far from the land, life sucks, life sucks, life sucks, life sucks. And what happens is, is the trauma, the crisis, the mess that we're in, it begins to fill our vision. Our vision, or you could say our vision becomes so narrow, it narrows in on that thing and that thing alone so that we can't even see anything else. It's like taking something and holding it really close to your face. When you take something and you hold it really, really close to your face, right, you can't see anything else because it blocks your vision or the things behind it become fuzzy. You are locked in on this one thing. And everything else, God included, begins to blur and fade into the background. And here's what the psalmist is teaching us. When he remembers what God has done in the Exodus, 
He's reminding you and me that everything you face, everything you have to deal with in the here and now remains, if your perspective is right, uh, how do I put this? Your salvation, let me go this way, your salvation, the fact that you are free from God's wrath because of your sin, the fact that you need not get up every day and wonder what you're here for, from the ultimate crisis, from the ultimate trial, from the ultimate mess in Jesus Christ, and therefore you are never, ever, ever, ever alone, no matter what it is you're facing. Paul says it in Romans 8, verse 32, he says something astounding. He said, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously, along with him, give us all things? It's all rooted in the fact that God gave his son to save you from your sin. What worship does is meditate on that, on the rescue, on his work in your life. Now, I tremble to say this, but I got to say it because this is the implication of the word of God. Some of you are facing very difficult things but your biggest problem is not actually the thing itself. Your biggest problem is your perspective on the thing itself. <sighs> I know some of you, and I know some of the stuff you're facing, and my stuff, I got my stuff. I'll talk a little bit about my stuff in a minute. My stuff pales in comparison to your stuff, so I am very cognizant of that. And when it's, I say this to you, I don't even have anybody in particular in mind. I'm just saying this is us. We zoom in on the stuff, on the trial, on the hardship, on the struggle, and God gets lost in it. And what needs to happen is, is we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. We need to worship. We need to remember that we have been rescued from the ultimate crisis. Nothing I face in the here and now can compare to what Jesus has accomplished for me in his life, death, and resurrection. And the same is true for you. And some of you have huge problems. Huge. Unbearable. Virtually insurmountable. And the mountain that you face in front of you is umpteen times larger than the little molehills I'm thinking about in my own life. And yet, and yet, And yet, when we worship, we are meditating on the fact that ultimately nothing can touch us because we are saved. Now, this leads to the second point. And that enables us to answer a very tough question. And the, the tough question is this. Look, if God's power, if God's power to rule is, is primarily seen and displayed through his rescue, then why doesn't he just rescue me? Why do I have to face this thing? 
Why do I have to bear this burden? Why do I have to go on like this? Seemingly endlessly for some of us. And, you know, Mark dealt with this last, last time in, in, in Psalm 77. The Psalms always, the Bible always, always just admits that the sovereign God of the universe is allowing these things to happen to us. It happens in Psalm 66 just as much as it did in 77. What does it say in verse 10? You tested us, verse 11. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and we went through water. That is an expression of what some of you are facing through fire. He's putting you through water. He's doing this to you. Why? Psalm 77 doesn't give us an answer, actually. And Mark pointed out there could be several different answers. And that's absolutely true. Psalm 66 does give us one. And it's the one that the Bible emphasizes more than any other. It's right here in verse 10 where it says, You have tried us as silver is tried. <sighs> Look, God just didn't just... Can, can someone turn the lights on? It's been nice without the lights, but I do have to read a little bit. And... I am now 45. Thank you. Um, God is not in the business just of rescuing his people. He's in the business of refining them. Also brought contamination, contamination of the image of God. And I'm using that word because Psalm 66 uses the word of being refined, right? We're being refined. You know what? what silver has to go through in order to be refined. It has to go through fire. And the fire burns off the dross and it purifies the silver. And verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 66 virtually acknowledges that. It says, look, we went to Egypt and we went through the experience of the oppression and the slavery and God rescued us, not just to rescue us and glorify his name, but to rescue us and glorify his name by refining his people. That was part of the hardship. Now, I do not like hard things. I know this about myself. If I have an idol that I bow down to more than any other, it is comfort. But I've been through a few difficult things lately. Not to, nothing in the comparison to what, what some of you are facing, but for me, it's been big. Okay? For me, it's been big. And I've just spent, God, relieve me of this. Take it away. Make it stop. How long, O oh Lord, must I endure? But more and more as I've been reflecting on Psalm 66, I've come to realize that my prayers need to be a little more along the lines of Romans 5. Romans 5, beginning at verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, suffering, I heard once, is like, it's like having the sun beating down on you. When sun beats down on clay, it hardens it. 
when that sun beats down on wax, it has the opposite effect. It softens it. Are you clay or are you wax? What will you choose to be? And in fact, actually, the difference lies in whether you can worship or not. Whether you can praise God in the midst of your suffering and say that God is good despite what I'm facing, God is good in the midst of what I'm facing. I loved how Mark touched on it last week about how what's interesting about about in the Psalms and in the recollections of God's redemption and God's coming to rescue his people, he didn't take Pharaoh away and didn't take the danger away. He provided a way through the danger that led to salvation. Make the choice to walk through the Red Sea. I cannot imagine what that must have been like for some of these people as they saw these walls of water. And I love how this one cartoon I saw, I can't remember what it was, but it was this one cartoon version of it, and it shows like this whale swimming along the wall, like almost like a, like a, a picture of, of looking, you know, when you're in a um, Ripley's Aquarium or something, and you see the fish go by. It's like this whale. Can you imagine? Having, you have to walk through. You want to live, you got to go. And God forced them in the sense that he created the circumstances in which they had to go. They had to go through in faith. But the only way through was through. Or the only way out was through. What's going to enable you to do that is you're going to be able to worship. You've got to be able to worship. Look at verses uh, 13 through 15 to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of sacrifice of rams I will make offerings of bulls and goats the psalmist chose to be wax you see do you notice how it's gotten personal he went from the corporate salvation of God's people to the personal salvation that he experienced, again we don't know the circumstances that he faced but he's thinking about God's rescue of himself and just as an aside by the way this is one of the reasons that we do testimonies when people become members of grace valley uh, we ask them to do some kind of testimony about god's work in their lives so that we can hear these kinds of stories from one another god is alive god is well is real and god is doing things actual transformative things in the lives of his people i know for some of you it's like what terrifying but it is so good for us to hear from one another about this but he looks, he, he gets personal, and as he reflects on what God has done, he, 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 gets, he gets pushed into these lavish acts of praise and worship. The, the, the scholars will all tell you that the burnt offerings he was giving were, were unique. Usually you'd give a portion to God, and, and it would get burned up, and then a portion would be for you to eat and celebrate what God has done with your friends or by yourself, but he gives it all. It was a very expensive thing. And the reason he did that was because he has, was remembering God's rescue of himself. In verse 18, he says, he says, if I, had cherished, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. He's not saying, because I was good, God heard me. What he's saying is, is, if I had held on to my sin, if I had refused to turn from it, if I had refused to repent of it, I would be cut off from God. But I did repent. 
and he heard me. See, the psalmist is remembering that he has been his people way back in history, but him himself as one of God's covenant people. He has been taken out of the realm of darkness and brought into God's wonderful light. And so he praises. There's no indication that he's been delivered from his trials. He's in something. Maybe he's still in something. But he can still praise and he calls others to it. Why? Because he's remembering the fact that he has been saved from his sin. Last point, very quickly. Very hard to do. I have seen it done by people. I have seen it done by people. And not to get too personal, but I, I remember very clearly, uh, I didn't talk about this with you before, Mark, but I should have, but, <laughs> oh well. Uh, I remember very clearly, I, I was Mark's grandmother's pastor years ago. And I remember very clearly when she was told that her breast cancer was terminal and that there was nothing the doctors could do, and that was it. And her and I had a conversation, and, and I asked her, so what are you going to do? You know you're going to die. You don't know how many months you've got, but it's more than a couple of days or a couple of hours, and you've got your brain still. What are you going to do with it? And she's like, I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to make the most of it. And I don't know if you know this clan that Mark is a part of, but they've got like 800 grandkids. And if I understand correctly, while she was infirm and dying, she lined up meetings with every single one of her grandkids, one-on-one -on -one meetings with every single one of her grandkids. And you know what she did? She shared the gospel with them. And she worshipped, and she testified that she was a forgiven sinner, and she begged her grandkids to hold on to Jesus. This woman, like, she didn't say, well, I've got to see the Grand Canyon before I die. Or I've got to go to St. Peter's Cathedral. I gotta worship. I gotta testify. I gotta tell my grandkids, come here and hear. This is verse 18 again. Come, nope, 16. Come and hear. Come and hear, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Now, that's hard. How are we gonna do that? How are we gonna do that? The gospel gives us resources, you see, because, you see, if you read Psalm 66 in light of the New Testament, you can't help but realize that it's, it's a psalm that expresses exactly what Jesus did. It tells us what Jesus did. You know, the author of the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, he says, and I, put, I had this printed on the front of your bulletin, it says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons of glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You hear that? Jesus was made perfect, how? Through suffering. Well, how on earth is Jesus made perfect through suffering? Hebrews 5 expands on that. I didn't print that anywhere. But in Hebrews chapter 5, it says this, beginning in verse 8 and 9. Listen to this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. 
So being made perfect means he learned obedience through his suffering. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was disobedient at one point and, and he learned to be obedient through suffering. No, what it means is, is that Jesus moved from untested obedience when it's, for lack of a better term, easy to obey, that tested obedience was perfected. Meaning, think completed, think filled up, think filled out. Now, Hebrews says in Hebrews 2 that it was fitting for this to happen. Why? Because he was bringing many sons to glory through this. Now, think about this. What Hebrews is saying is, is that through this suffering that Jesus faced and the obedience that he learned through it that was perfected through that suffering, he was bringing you and you and you who suffer poorly, who when we suffer, we complain and we grumble and we say, why God? And we say, where are you, God? And we say, why isn't it different, God? Because I think I know better than you, God, how things should go. You and I who fail in our suffering are being brought into glory anyway because Jesus did it for us. He did it for us. So that we could be empowered to do it and we meditate on that. We can do that too. Didn't you have that when we were singing? I, I had it when we were singing. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. It, the, the song isn't saying, forget. Just forget all that you've done. Like you can wipe your memory clean like a, like a hard reset on your iPhone. It's saying, don't let them rule you and don't go back to them. And don't you find when you meditate on how great Jesus is and how wonderful he is and all the, all the, the lengths he's gone to, to to rescue you, don't you find yourself wanting to give up your sin? Don't you find yourself wanting to just abandon everything for him and do whatever he tells you because he's so deserving of your devotion? Don't you find that? That's the Holy Spirit working that power in friends of mine. And they also happen to be former parishioners of mine who, uh, I can't remember how many years ago it was now, but they, uh, they gave birth uh, to a, a little boy with Down syndrome. But when he was born, there were huge, huge complications with his birth and with him that he was near death. And his parents didn't know if he was going to live a week or a month, and he needed emergency surgery. I believe it was heart surgery. They're very close friends with Mike and Ange, and I was hoping Mike and Ange were here so I could get all my facts straight, but they're not here, so that's on me, sorry. But this child was very close to death. And like many believers, what did they do when they were in a crisis? They scoured God's word. They went looking high and low for comfort and strength and sources of strength. And you know what they found? Is they, they landed on Psalm 66. And what Psalm 66 did was, was not just tell them, oh, it's, it's going to be okay. It gave them a grand vision of the God who was superintending over the very thing that they were facing and had promised them that one thing is indisputable. They were his. And he would never let them go. 
and he would hold on to them even in the most tenuous moments of this crisis. And I remember being there on the night of, of surgery. We're sitting there at McMaster Hospital in the emergency room, and we are singing together, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Even as they were wondering if their son was going to live through this surgery, they were saying they had 10,000 reasons. And man, did they testify. Did they testify. They were telling everybody, come and hear what the Lord has done for us, even when they were worried that their little boy was going to die in surgery. They were telling the doctors. Turned out he was a Christian, so that wasn't, not that it was like, didn't work, because, you know. But you're like, oh, I got a great way to witness here. Oh, now you're a Christian? Now you don't need this. No. Uh, <laughs> but to the nurses, to the doctor, to the surgeon, to the other people in the children's ward, to their neighbors, to their church family, it went everywhere. It went everywhere. Verse 20, blessed be God. He has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Pray with me, please. Father, help us to get the perspective. Father, the gift of salvation is it is that precious pearl of great price. It is that coin that could never be replaced. It is that greatest treasure that any follower of Jesus can have. Father, help us to believe that and trust that and meditate on that, even when other stuff so hurts. And as we cling to that, may we know that you who did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? In Jesus we pray, amen.